You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. Welcome to episode three. I'm really happy to be presenting today's interview with Sister Mary Rachel Caput's OP. Sister Mary Rachel is a sister in the Dominican Order, and she shares really beautifully in this discussion about growing up in Pennsylvania, her decision to join the convent at a really young age, the vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience, and why those are important and relevant, what day-to-day looks like for the sisters, and so much more. You can learn more about the Dominican sisters and stay up to date with the work that they do at www.nashvilledominican.org or on their Facebook page, Dominican Sisters of St. Cecilia in Australia. This was an incredibly eye-opening and really wonderful interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's my conversation with Sister Mary Rachel. I grew up outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the U.S. and um, in a small town and um, grew up in a Catholic family. So really, really faithful, beautiful parents and a beautiful family, youngest of six. And um, yeah, so that area in Pittsburgh. Nice. So far away from here in Sydney. Yes, yes. And um, so you were always a Catholic from when you were young. Is there a kind of moment for you when you felt like you found God for yourself or was that something that was always just ingrained in you? No, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. I, um, I think because my parents are very fervent, um, it was certainly something that was ingrained in me, but I had also to experience um, that personal relationship with Jesus and come to know him. And I was really blessed and grateful that that happened for me at a young age. It was, um, it's actually a funny story. I'm a teacher now. And so I, I sometimes look out for those students who may be on those first days of school or ill at ease because um, I had a really hard time going to school and um, mostly because I missed, missed my parents when I went. And so it sounds um, silly, you know, but uh, my first days of school each year were, um, I was quite anxious. And I remember probably the, the time when I think that I really came to know Jesus personally was um, through through one of my teachers. So it was the first day of school, and um, I was in year five, so fifth grade, and that anxious feeling came over me, and I thought, I do not want to be here. So I raised my hand, and I asked the teacher, can I go to my fourth grade teacher and talk to her? And the teacher said, that's fine. So I went across the hall, and I knocked on the door, and I said, Mrs. Campbell, can I talk to you? And she's she said, sure. So she came out, which was really, really, really very good of her because she left her class for, I just, you know, stood in the doorway and asked, what's wrong? And I said, I don't want to be here. I, um, I really just want to go home. And she said, I think this might be a temptation. And I said, oh, okay. But it didn't scare me that she said that. She said, let's just ask Jesus right now. So we just said a little prayer. We just said um, a simple prayer of Jesus she prayed, Jesus, please take this homesickness and this anxiety away from little Rachel and, and give her your peace. And in that moment, I understood Jesus. I, couldn't, I didn't have these words, but I understood him as Savior um, and my personal Savior. That at that moment, he did have power over whatever was bothering me. 
but but a real sense of his comfort and his presence. So I, as a fifth grade student, went, you know, back into class and, and then kind of life went on. But from that moment on, any time that I experienced uh, anything that would be negative, you know, that I don't know the source or just a ill at ease is something I, that taught me to call on him, to call on Jesus. And um, I think that was the first time, um, yeah, first time that I, that I can remember um, coming to know him. Wow, it's a cool story. Yeah, yeah. And um, are you able to share a bit more about your childhood and some of your early memories there in in Pennsylvania? It was? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Um, yeah, it was a great, uh, great childhood. I guess very simple, um, and uh, it mostly revolved around sports. Oh yeah. So big, big. Uh, my family was big into sports. I was big into sports. So. Um, that just meant every summertime, all summer was, um, softball games and, you know, late spring in, into summer. And, um, but it was, it was definitely, uh, also with church, like Sunday, going to church Sunday was just, uh, ordinary event that we would do. Didn't ever, ever think about it. Um, so the faith was certainly a big part. Sports was a big part. Uh, family was a big thing. And, um, and yeah, study wasn't much at that time. <laughs> you became a teacher. Yeah, I became a teacher, yes. Oh, and so you're the youngest of six. That's How right. was that? Yes. It's, um, you know, it's interesting. I had to, I had to learn um, if my, my siblings would probably listen to this. So it's, you have to be careful what you say. <laughs> but um, you have to, as the youngest, I think, um, eventually find a voice, you know. What is your yeah. voice? And uh, it's funny because when I began teaching, we do when you're learning how to teach, often you're videoed. And I found that I was not completing sentences. I thought, what is that all about? And I think it's because in a big family, you start to say something about you get cut off. You uh, know, so yeah. then I thought, oh, I really need to work on that. Finish a thought, finish a sentence. But I was uh, just so blessed to be surrounded, really surrounded by love. You know, siblings fight and do all that kind of stuff and uh, pinch each other at church and things. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I really, really have always knew their love and um and those five and the five above me in age are very close and then there's five years between myself and my um next oldest sister so in some sense it was like we there were six of us um a lot of people and then by my high school years I was almost like the only child because everybody had moved out so, wow that's yeah. so interesting yeah. was that lonely or was it nice to get that time with your parents or? it was ble- it was a ble- real blessing to have that time with my parents yeah and I um I think I learned um, at that time maybe how to be content with being alone at times, you know, um, being content with just going out into the woods maybe by myself or when the snow was falling to just go out and take a sled and just lie in the snow and um, be okay with that and kick the soccer ball around um, in the backyard by myself, those kinds of things. I think I'd be I was okay with it because there were many other times when I was with friends and with family. Yeah. yeah. So I don't remember it as a lonely time. I remember it as um, sometimes as a, a just peaceful, yeah, peaceful time. Nice. Mm-hmm. And at what point did you sort of engage the idea of becoming a nun? Yeah. Um, I was actually taught by sisters growing up, uh, Sisters of Charity, which is a different congregation than the ones here in Sydney. Um, they're from Seaton Hill, which is in Pennsylvania. 
So I was taught by the sisters and they would often ask uh, or often refer to the call if God calls you, you know. And um, so we would joke about it among, among, among my sisters and I, the, my, you know, siblings. But, um, but I don't know that I really took it seriously uh, until I went, I went away to university. I went to <clears throat> called Franciscan University of Steubenville in Ohio. And that's when I saw our sisters for the first time and um, saw uh, sisters who wear the habit. So the habit is just the um, religious dress that the sisters wear. And the, the Dominican habit is white, uh, in a long white habit with a black veil. And when I saw that, of course, I've seen that on television, but I actually said, do people still do that? You know, I was taken aback by, by the habit, but also by the joy of the sisters. And so um, it wasn't then that I really asked the question, but it was actually um, friends of mine in normal conversation would ask, you know, so what do you think you're going to do? And, and the, the word that they would use are, are you discerning? Are you discerning if God is calling you to be a sister? Because there were several people from that university who would be sisters or some uh, young men who would be priests. So it was, a, it was the environment was um, very faithful that people would freely ask that question. So it actually challenged me to, to ask the question, I guess. I don't, I don't think I had. And then um, somebody had given a good piece of advice. They, just, they said, no matter what God is calling you to, you have to first establish a relationship with him. So have a committed life of prayer. And I, um, I said, okay, that's pretty non-threatening. You know, I want to come to know Jesus more. If he calls me to be married, then I hope that he would be the center of that marriage. And if he calls me to be a religious sister, then I would just come to know him more and more. So that was non-threatening. Um, so saw the sisters, but didn't think about it much, but then had that invitation to pray about my vocation, what God was calling me to. And then, um, as I said, sport was a big part of my life and God uses a lot of times he uses the desires of our hearts. And it was an interesting um, moment when that when the possibility became real. And it was there was a sister who was there on the campus and studying. And I had a group of friends and they just came over and invited me, a bunch of um, guy friends and the girl, you know, some girls as well. And you want to play basketball? You want to play a game of basketball? And I said, oh, definitely. And they turned to sister and they said, yeah, sister, you want to play basketball? And I was like, oh, I don't know. That's embarrassing. Is she really going to be able to do that, you know? Yeah. So we went out onto the court and um, she took she took her rosary, a long rosary, off of her belt and put it on the bench. And I thought, well, what's this? And the first time they tossed her the ball, she made a three-pointer. Three <laughs> cool. And I went, whoa, what in the world? And it was like, um, it was like, wait a second, this is actually possible. I don't have to give up every interest I have and become something I'm not in order to follow God's call. It was, hold on, he's calling, but I didn't know he's calling me, but it's just the possibility at that point of, whoa, he's actually calling me with all of my interests and who I am. And that was a little bit scary because it was, uh, it you know, you can automatically see the, you know, we're mixing with a mysterious God. So what does that, what is that going to mean? You know, what is that going to mean for me? So that's the first time it became a possibility. And then um, just through a series of prayer and a, a, like a times of my own personal prayer and going to visit, our sisters are in Nashville, Tennessee. And so going, making a retreat down in Nashville, Tennessee, 
um, I was really beginning to take it serious that maybe the Lord is calling me. But it wasn't until, um, I guess, one definitive moment um, was in one of those times of prayer. And and this uh, school has a chapel uh, and there's... um, Within the Catholic faith, we have what we what we talk about perpetual adoration. So, opportunity to um, to adore our Lord, the, who we believe is really present in the Blessed Sacrament, so in the Eucharist. So, when He said, "I I will be with you until the end of the world," we believe He's He is with us still in the Eucharist. So, opportunities then to go and be and spend time with Him and be with Him and and what we say, adore Him. So I was doing that each day for an hour a day, just of saying, Lord, what's your will? And just trying to love him and receive his love. And in one of those times, I was actually praying about a guy that I was dating and thinking, oh, is this the guy you want me to marry? I mean, if not, I really need, we need to end it, but is this the man? And, um, and it was funny because it was at that moment that I felt like the Lord kind of gently... <laughs> knocked like knocked him out of the way and it was just um the lord uh right before me not vis- not visibly and not um just just prayerfully not um not in any way that i saw him you know yeah um but i f- i heard in the quiet of my heart um the lord make what i what i say is a proposal that he said i have i heard him say in the silence of my heart i have made your heart for me and no other man and at that moment is when I knew he was calling me to be what we say his spouse, to be a bride of Christ and to follow him in this really unique way. And wow. um, yeah, so I actually left the chapel and um, it was a beautiful day. And I just kind of laughed and I uh, went, oh, I'm engaged. This is like, <laughs> you know, we think about it all the time growing up. What would that be like? Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually my, yeah, that was the crux of my call. That's so interesting. And You've kind of addressed it there already, but I think um, one thing that a lot of people find hard to engage mm-hmm. in the modern day is the idea of this vow of celibacy. Yes. Are you able to expand on why that's important for you? Yes. Yeah. So we take, as religious, we take three vows. We take the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. They're called the evangelical councils or the, or the gospel councils. And very simply, it's we are wanting to be like Christ. So we're wanting to follow the way that, that Jesus lived as, as a poor one, as chaste and obedient. So um, so just as the Lord had kind of said to me personally, but the, what it is is that he, um, we follow him with an undivided heart. So, you know, like a wife and a mom, beautifully is engaged in the life of her husband and her children. And it's a and the call to marriage is beautiful. And likewise the husband <laughs> is engaged with the life of his wife and children. And it's all consuming at times and and um and at times ought to be. But the Lord calls some to be uh, to have our attention totally fixed on him. And um in the life of prayer, but then also in a life of ministry. So we believe that um, like that call to live a life of celibacy or chastity is to have an undivided heart, but it's also that, that our heart is free to love everybody. Mm. So um, sometimes people ask, well, don't you miss having children? And, and that's true, but to have my own little ones, you know. But, um, but what we really live is spiritual motherhood. So 
And it's very real, especially as a teacher, that that in the classroom we have these beautiful young ones who are entrusted to our care for a period of time. And, um, and it becomes very real that they become our spiritual children. And we have the time for them that, um, that maybe others can't because they're limited by, um, limited in a sense, you know what I mean, by, um, they have obligations to family, but we as religious don't have those obligations. So we're free to, to dedicate our entire lives to, um, the service of God and to his people. Wow. Very good. And so at the time when you initially made this decision, did you go and tell your loved ones right there or? Yes, I actually went, um, I went first to my parents. My parents and I were meeting up at a, um, a friend of mine was having a, um, it must've been an engagement party. So it's fitting. (laughs) And my parents and I were there and I was busting, just bursting to tell them. And so I remember sitting kind of next next to my mom, and I said, "Mom, I think it, I think that I think God might be calling me to be a sister." And it wasn't really the time or the place to talk about it. So it was one of those, "Wow, like what do you mean? We'll have to talk about it?" type of a thing. Mm. And how old were you? I must have been. I entered the convent when I was twenty-one, so I think I'm at this time I must have been twenty. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so I um, I ended up talking with them, and I don't think they were surprised. And what came out later um, is that when the sister who was uh, what we call vocation director, so a sister who's already a sister and then is assist you in this dis- discernment process and then um, in the process of becoming a sister, um, she talked with my parents and later told me that my dad had shared with her that um, at my baptism day, the whole school was present and we um, beautiful photos of it. But at, at my baptism day, he had a... My dad had a sense, and even his in his own prayer of saying to the Father, to God the Father, that um, she is yours. She doesn't belong to me. You know, so my dad had that experience at my baptism that I I didn't belong to them, that I belonged to the Father. And um, so I think that they, parents know a lot, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> they have great insights. And um, so I don't think they were surprised. It doesn't mean it was easy. Yeah. Um, because there is a there is a separation that is required when you enter the religious life, and um, by nature, it's it's to be separated from the world, and especially in those first in those first years, there's a separation, and um, so they're very supportive, but there were certainly tears. You know, my siblings, to their great credit, um, were also supportive. They were, they had a lot of questions because they didn't meet sisters, the sisters that I like that I am now, the group of the community that I was going to enter, they'd never met them. Mm. The sisters that they knew were older and um, they didn't, so they couldn't imagine me as a 20 and 21 year old joining that community. So they had to learn some things, you know, but um, to their credit, they were beautiful. Just so if you're happy, we're happy. Like we're happy that you're going to be happy. You know, this is good for you and they're supportive. So. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And is it more common in the U.S. than it is here? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, within uh, the within the Catholic Church, there you might have remembered when it happened in Sydney, World Youth Day. Yes. So every two yeah. or three years is World Youth Day. So, yeah. um, and World Youth Day just means that um, the Pope, uh, whoever's the Pope at the time, 
he it's a simple, not really simple though. It's a massive gathering with young people. Yeah, so it's an invitation is. to engage with the young people. And Pope John Paul II, um, he's the one who initiated it, uh, I think in the late 80s. And so World Youth Day happened in Denver, Colorado in 1993. And I had just graduated from high school, which I'm exp- telling my age. <laughs> I just graduated from high school and I went to World Youth Day in Denver. And the great gift of World Youth Day to a country is it has the capacity to ignite the fire, you know, of faith in the hearts of young people. That happened in Denver in 93. And I think it happened in Sydney in 2008. So whenever you ask that question of, um, are there more there? Um, I guess, yes, because of the number of people, just the population of, of the U.S., but also because of the timing. So from 1993 onward, there was a, a great renewal of religious life and priesthood um, and dedicated married life within uh, the church in the U.S. And um, and I think that's happening here in Sydney from 2008. Wow, yeah. so interesting. It is, yeah. It's really good. And how do people react, people that you meet now? I mean, you're mm-hmm. obviously wearing the religious dress that so people yes. know right away yeah. that you are a sister. Yeah. How do people respond in general? Yeah, it's almost like a generational response. It's interesting yeah. because um, older people, or I shouldn't just say generational, it's almost, there's a couple of categories, but older people, a lot of times, like if we go to the grocery store or we're catching a train or whatever, a lot of times older people will um, tell us how good it is to see the habit, the religious habit. And then they'll share a story about somebody that they know. Oftentimes it's that they were taught by a sister or a brother or, um, or if it's somebody from another country who have a lot of religious, um, especially in the Middle East. So Lebanon, and they'll, they'll say it's so good to see the religious habit and you remind me of home. So, um, so that's, often so positive and um then there's the category of people who will see us and they'll instantly ask for prayers so they'll um see they'll see the habit and they'll see our cross and they'll see the crucifix or the uh, rosary and if something's going on in their life they'll just say please pray you know that's a cool Uh, opportunity yeah it is it really is and i think it connects back to that spiritual motherhood that we are we are really sisters. That's why we like the, we don't just like the name sister because it's a title. We don't like, we don't use it for prestige. We use it for, because it automatically establishes our relationship, mm. that I'm your sister. And that means that you can ask me whatever, and you can tell me whatever, just as a sister. So people will say all kinds of things to us. Um, way more often is it positive, way more often. So and then we have the category of young people. And um, sometimes it's funny if it's the first sister that they've ever seen. Uh, this just happened. We were down in Melbourne and we were at a school and the little, little kindy said, here comes Jesus, people. <laughs> I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, it works. And so they yeah, don't have, right. a, they don't know how, what, is, what are you? What are you, ah. you know? So the only thing they could uh, do is connect us with Jesus or sometimes very very funny they'll say angels or sometimes they'll say princess that's very sweet sweet. um or churches here comes the (laughs) churches and then there's the teenagers who um they uh they're not as stereotypical as people might think they're um they sometimes especially if it's kids who are 
struggling. Uh, I don't understand it exactly, but they have a sense of, of comfort and they really like our rosaries because they, I don't know if they think it's bling or what, <laughs> but, they, um, but it's, um, they will, uh, yeah, they'll say all kinds of things to us. So then there's a category of negativity, but that's very minimal. And uh, when it comes, it's interesting because it's, um, it's not that they don't know who we are, it's that they do know who we are. And so it's, in a sense, it's a, a little tiny smidge of persecution, which is um, not so bad in this day and age. If we could talk as well about um, the transition yeah. into becoming a sister. Yeah. Great. So I had mentioned um, that whenever we talk about um, entering religious life, so we, um, women from all different places, you enter um, the convent and there's a, there's a certain ho- what we call house of formation. So it's the place where you learn how to become a sister. And... Um, and that for us is in Nashville, Tennessee. So our community is called Dominican Sisters of St. Cecilia. So the place it, where we enter is called um, St. Cecilia Motherhouse. So whenever you enter, you enter with a group of sisters, a group of young women who are also feeling called to become sisters. But that first year, you're called a postulant. And so you're not, you're, you go by the name sister, but you... Um, you don't have any other commitment other than you're just, you're really investigating this. Is this really what God is calling me to do? Okay. So that word to postulate means to question. And that's really what that first year is. It is a big transition. Mm. Um, What's the rate of follow through for good postulate? Yeah, so yeah, right? postul- postulants. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, the whole process from the time you enter to the time you make final vows is seven years. So that probably the rate of that is, I guess, three fourths. So three fourths of the young women who enter make final vows. Um, so and that just depends throughout those years what the transition. Um, but the transition into that first year is um, quite radical, actually, because these are women who have various backgrounds. Some of them are professionals, could be a lawyer. In my group, there was a lawyer who had her own law firm. Uh, professional ballerina, some who were uh, teachers and students. And um, so it's various backgrounds. And then coming into um, into a life that is quite structured. So it's um, waking up at five in the morning and then joining the rest of the sisters in the chapel for prayer and then mass together and then um, breakfast and then you go off to school. And so even that, just that five o'clock rise is a big, um, is a big wake up call, so to speak, you know, literally, because, (laughs) um, because in the world you're, you're, we're so used to just getting up whenever you want, pressing snooze a whole bunch of times or, or, um, setting our own schedule really. And, um, when you enter religious life, the idea is you believe God's calling you to, to this for the service of Christ and his church. And, um, and so there's a certain manner that you do that, right? Everything is done to support that vocation and, and um, somehow to bring him honor and glory, right? So, um, so the transition is, can be stark, you know? Mm. So um, then after, um, when we're, we go away to school in those first couple of years, we're, we're just studying. Um, at our, we have a college called Aquinas College in Nashville. So we begin our teaching degree if we didn't have it already. And then um, 
And then the first year we just come back and we have classes in the afternoon. And then we also have a bit of a bit of fun together, which is important. And um, so I didn't, like I said earlier, I didn't have to give up that sport. So every, every day for about an hour, we have what we call recreation. So we might play volleyball or basketball or ultimate Frisbee, and then um, maybe some more study. And then we have prayers again together as a whole community at, um, at 4.30, from 4.30 to 5.30, and then dinner together. And then again, recreation, which just means in the evening might just be catching up on the day or playing a game together, or um, sometimes sisters like to do, uh, have various hobbies and then um, night prayers. And then you have time in the evening for study. So you can hear how the schedule is pretty, um, pretty tight. Yeah. Um, But we have a, we as Dominicans, because we're, our apostolate is particularly teaching Mm. We spend a lot of time, especially in the early years, um, really studying so that we are ready, ready for the apostolate, ready to go out and, and, um, and teach. Great. Yeah. Um, and just, yeah, dwelling on that day to day with that, cause I think that's really interesting to people knowing mm-hmm. what day to day looks like. Yes. Do you all cook meals together or right. how does that all work? Yeah. It's a, there's two things that happen and the, at the mother house, there are uh, maybe at one time, it's just throughout the school year at the mother house, there might be 150 or more sisters there. Mm-hmm. So there are sisters who um, that's their assignment to to be in the kitchen to cook for ah. the sisters. Ah, yes. But then we have various um, smaller what we call mission houses. So in the U.S., we have, um, I think, about 23 different mission houses that might be anywhere from three to 10 sisters. And then we have this house here in Sydney and then one in Vancouver one in Scotland, one in um, outside of Rome, Bracciano, and uh, one in the Netherlands. So those smaller houses, the sisters take turns cooking. So in that sense, it's almost like a like a little family, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Yeah. And we actually, what is unique um, also about our life is we have our meals in silence. And so it's a monastic custom. So it's that's going on for... Um, probably th- since the time of St. Benedict, so oh. 300s or something like that. And, um, or 500, sorry, historians. <laughs> um, and what that, the idea is that we we listen to some kind of reading, at, what we call reading at table. So the mother house that's big enough, a sister will read. Um, maybe it's a life of, uh, could be a autobiography, could be a biography, could be a spiritual reading book, or it could be something light, it could be a novel. And um, depending on, it's just varied. And that is, um, the idea is that while our bodies are being fed, then our souls are also being fed with the word of God. So, um, but on smaller missions, it's usually books on tapes or conferences are tapes or perhaps this (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Great. (laughs) And things that um, other people might do day to day, like go to the movies or, you know, reading the news, things like that. Is that part of your world as well? Or is that not really? Yeah, that's a good question. We, um, the news is, yes. And the, um, um, we might watch the news or we would read the news or, um, and again, it's, it, each religious, um, community or congregation is different and, um, what they can and can't do it, in terms of some of those rules, like some are um, all religious do take those vows of poverty, chastity, obedience. So those are common to all. 
but smaller, so to speak, smaller rules um, differ according to communities. So our community, we do um, watch the news and we do read the news. And that's mostly because of, um, because of our teaching. What we're careful about, though, is we don't we try not we re, try to read informed news. We don't read tabloids or random gossip things or um, things that wouldn't help the, our spiritual life or help the apostolate. Mm. Um, and then in terms of going out to the movies, we um, there's been a couple of special occasions where we've gone out. Uh, maybe if there is something that is particularly um, uh, maybe religious, when the Passion of the Christ came out a few years back, somebody had donated a bunch of tickets for us to go, had rented out the theater. And so a hundred sisters go off. Oh, great. Um, yes. Or there, if um, there's a, we have a chaplain back in Nashville and he had bought tickets for the sisters to go see the movie of gods and men. So if it's something that's of, of a particularly high caliber, rather, whether it's in the, in the arts or, or religiously focused, um, then we might go to see a movie, but it's not that often. Mm. And in that case, because it's not that often, it's quite special for, for us. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah. And do you do social media? Yeah, that's that was something we really, uh, our community was probably late in, in engaging in. We do have a Facebook page. And um, and one of the sisters posts things there. But doesn't, um, we don't uh, communicate through it a lot. Probably most of the communication that I do with, with um, organizations or young women who are discerning or um, various business things would be through email. Um, but we do have a Facebook page and that's mostly to post if we're having retreats or we're having a, an event, we'll post it. So I think it would be interesting if you could tell us about living in a community of sisters. Good. Yeah. Um, community life, uh, for religious is really important. So I mentioned the vows, poverty, chastity, obedience, but also, um, we live in community and the idea is actually, uh, modeled off the off the early church, so the apostles, the early apostles who lived in community, and the idea that, um, well, to support each other, not just financially, but also to support one another in ministry. So, um, community life is a great gift, actually, and um, and I think vital in our day and age because I think people are hungry for community. They're hungry for family life. And we actually are called to be um, one of the Holy Fathers, uh, one of the popes a few years back wrote a, wrote a document and he actually called all religious men and women to be experts in communion. And we as sisters experience that a lot because um, sometimes people don't know us and they don't, but they'll see us out. And um, we, we like to travel in by twos. And that's just following what our Lord said, you know, when you go out, go to get, go together, you know, like the early apostles would go preaching together. And, um, for one reason is that's just kind of practical. Another reason though, is it, it is the first witness because oftentimes people will say to us, they can see a great joy or they'll, the first thing they see is how, how we get along. Mm-hmm. And um, they might not know anything and we might not even speak anything, but just the witness of of us being together. And I think that our world is hungry for that. And uh, the sisters and I were recently talking about it. We have this uh, community study and we're um, just so that we're, we continue to grow and continue to learn. And, and so uh, twice a month we study something and then once a month we discuss it. 
So the other day we were talking about not only is it a witness, but people actually, in a sense, um, scrutinize us. I think that people are, are very good at picking up what is authentic and what's fake. So people scrutinize us to see, do they really get along? Do they really love each other? And, you know, our Lord is the one who said, see how they love one another. That's a great witness to community. So, um, but it's certainly something that, that doesn't just come naturally. It needs to be worked at. Um, and what that means is that every individual person in the community is striving and, and really working on um, being their best, but also being okay with saying um, sorry. You know, recently Pope Francis said, um, he wouldn't allow a young sister or a young brother to make profession of vows if they can't say the simple words of please, thank you, and I'm sorry. And I think we for, we sometimes forget that those essential um, things in our in family life or in community life. And um, so it's a great gift to live community, but I also think it's a great witness for people. Um, and perhaps the witness of forgiveness, um, that in our day-to-day life, we each do things we shouldn't do. We all say things we shouldn't say. Um, but, but the real need to, um, to be open to one another, to never burn bridges, and, um, and to be willing to, to humble ourselves and say, I really messed up and I am sorry. And, and I hope you can forgive me. Not forgive me, but I hope you can. Yeah. Just one last thing on the community and the vows. Yeah. What is the vow of poverty actually? How does that play out? What does that look like? Yeah, so that's the vow that, um, that vow of poverty means that we hold everything in common. Okay. Oh, yes. So there's so yes. community again. Then. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it depends greatly on community. Um, remember in the early church when all the apostles they and the disciples, they brought all their goods and they laid them at the feet you know, of the, of the apostles. And it was um, saying, okay, now all, everything that I have now is for the use of everybody. Now there's practical things that we have, like I wear a watch and I mean, Gosh, if the sister asked me to borrow it, it wouldn't be a problem. So the things that we have for our personal use, but then there are um, everything else that, that is in common. So the car that we use is all of ours, and our bank account is all of ours. And we receive a um, what is called a religious stipend for teaching, but that goes doesn't go to the individual sister; it goes to the community. And um, and so then we can use things, our community, because we're teachers, we can use things for the apostolate. So for instance, I have a computer for my use, you know, a laptop for my use, and sisters who are studying a laptop for her use. But when I leave here uh, to be a mission somewhere else, I won't take it. I'll leave it here. But I need that for teaching, you know. So, um, But if it's a different community of sisters, so for instance, the missionaries of charity, they wouldn't use a computer very often because their call is to be among the poorest of the poor. So our poverty is connected to our apostolate. But at the same time, every individual sister needs to keep that in check. You know, like I could make excuses and say, oh, but I need this, you know, so I really need to, I need to discern it. And that's all, again, it goes back to community, um, keeping, helping to keep one another accountable and, um, and helping one another out. Yeah, but it, it's very, very freeing because our minds are not often on money. And uh, if people, when people own homes and they, they have to take care of things, but that can be 
for them a great burden, um, but for us it's very freeing. Um, and probably they would desire that freedom, I think, in a lot of ways. And um, so it's a, it's a great gift. Poverty that we live is a great gift. Wow, that's a really interesting observation. Yeah. 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 So you obviously came over to Australia. When, when did that choice come along? Good. So, um, so three of us came to Australia in 2007, and we came to work for World Youth Day. So I had mentioned World Youth Day. Um, there were uh, Archbishop Anthony Fisher, so the, he's the um, Archbishop of Sydney, Catholic Archbishop of Sydney, and he at the time was an auxiliary bishop, but he's also a Dominican. He's a Dominican friar and a Dominican bishop. So um, he, he came um, to our mother house in Nashville years ago, actually, and, um, and it's almost uh, out, of his, out of his dream that we're here. It's quite beautiful that um, years ago he came to Nashville and he prayed in our chapel and and he had a desire that our sisters would be um, would be here in Sydney. There are Dominican sisters already here, and so it was the idea that we would um, continue to cooperate with the, what is happening in the spread of the gospel. So, um, when World Youth Day came about, he was a, he was the bishop coordinator for the World Youth Day, and it was really a perfect opportunity for for our sisters to come over for what was at that time just one year commitment. So we came over, we were working for World Youth Day. It was a great time, really, really exciting. And, um, and in that time, our community was discerning it. Is God calling us to, what we say, set up a mission? So to have a mission house um, here in Sydney. And, and then at the, so at the end of that year is when, um, when our community mo- mother, who is the um, leader of our community, superior mother, and our council came to visit Sydney and... Um, and to begin, I guess, really to receive the invitation of Cardinal Powell and Archbishop Anthony to begin to teach here. And um, so the Cardinal, at the time, he was interested in, in our sister's teaching, which is what we do in the U.S., um, and then getting involved in university chaplaincy. So, um, yeah, so we've been doing that now for, I guess, it's about eight years. So Great. Yeah. So when you did um, decide to come to Australia long term, yes. how how's that been? Missing your family and the different culture as well. Yeah, yeah that's um. Uh, we actually, um, whenever I came to Australia, it was that I was sent. So the three of us were sent, and that's one of those assignments that I referred to. So um, it's part of our vow of obedience that we're sent uh, where mother. Uh, when mother discerns um, and she makes up the assignments for the year, she sends each of us out to our different places. So different schools or different various ministries, mostly teaching. Um, so that was exciting because I couldn't believe that I was going to come the whole way to Sydney, Australia. Um, and it was all exciting. It was thinking about World Youth Day, thinking about, you know, all those stereotypical first things you think about Australia. And, um, and it, it was really very exciting. And then, um, I guess as reality sits in a little bit, it was, um, I certainly was homesick. And what was interesting to me is it was the homesickness that I'd experienced as a child. It was that, um, that kind of fundamental, what is that? A fundamental, um, homesickness really. Um, 
And what was interesting about that was um, at that time in our community, we we emailed even our families. And so I was in somewhat regular contact, email contact with my family and um, and the sisters over in the States. But what was funny is you would think that being in constant or not constant, but regular email contact would alleviate homesickness. But in fact, it did just the opposite. It divided my heart between Australia and knowing everything going on with my family. And it made it harder to be away. Now, that came to my attention in the Advent season leading up to Christmas. I was really, really homesick. And we have a custom within our community that at the seasons before, uh, right before Christmas and right before Lent, we we don't um, like write to anybody. We use it as a time of um, preparation for the seat, for the the big feasts in the church of birth of our Lord and then the resurrection of our Lord. So I thought, wow, well, we've been doing, I've been doing that my whole religious life. So I, that means I can't email my family during that time. And in those weeks leading up to Christmas, I found that I was less homesick and talking with my, the Prior's General Mother Anne Marie back at, um, in Nashville, I described that and she was, she was a great gift of wisdom. And she said, you know, it makes a lot of sense because your heart has actually been divided. You've been very aware of what's going on there. You're trying to be present where you are, but you're you're not fully present. So that experience of not emailing actually helped me. So I went back to the old, <laughs> what we still do now, if um, I still write to my parents regular through the post and they write to me. Um, but I had to kind of confront what is that? What is that? Um, Homesickness, and I've used the word anxiety a couple of times because um, homesick to me is a type. I've come to name it as a type of anxiety, and it was. Um, I think what I, the Lord was calling me to was a deeper. I think probably a deeper conversion, a deeper reliance on Him. And I remember going to a um, to um, one of the churches, and we were singing a hymn, and it was actually a Maronite church, so a Lebanese church. So they had the Arabic um, on one side. The hymn, the hymn was in Arabic, and then they had the English translation on the other side. And the English translation of this particular hymn was um, Jesus saying, I am your home. And it was, I think, just a particular grace that I went, oh, yes, yes, you are my home. And, um, and that has, uh, again, freed me to really embrace this mission because now I've been here for eight years. I go home each year to see our sister's um, back at the mother house and then to see my family. So that's a great blessing. But I did have to work through that, um, that missing family and missing the sisters and missing your home culture. Um, but I think that it's helped me really to, um, to rely more on, on the Lord, on the sisters that I'm here with and give, and it's given me a, um, I think a sense of there's so many people here in Sydney and so many students that I, teach for whom their homes are not Sydney and um, they've come. So 70% of, of our student population has, their families have been from other countries. And so I think that it's helped me to understand them, um, you know, from the inside (laughs) and, um, and yeah, yeah. So I think that's been, that's been my experience. And, and I, um, I couldn't, there is the vow of obedience and that there's a grace that comes with that. But then there's also, um, Mother Teresa calls a call within a call. And, um, 
at the end of that first year, mother knew I was homesick. So she said to me, we're going to stay on in Sydney. And so I want you to pray about it and let me know what you think. And and again, I received a particular grace. Um, we were hosting a retreat. We host women's retreats um, each year. And I was meeting with a young woman and she was telling me that she really felt called to be a sister. But at that stage, she didn't know where. She said, I don't know where I'm being called and I don't, um, I don't think there's anywhere for me to go. And again, I had alluded to the Lord speaking to the silence of my heart on a different occasion. And he did the same thing that I, as I was listening to her, it was as if, as if I was listening to her with my left ear <laughs> and, and the Lord, um, almost as if he was whispering in my right ear of just saying, I hadn't decided if I was going to stay at that point. And it was as if I just heard him in the silence of my heart say, your yes will allow others to say yes. But in that the invitation, I was very aware that he was saying, you are free. You're free to say yes or to say no. But that he wanted me to know that if if I say yes, others can say yes. Um, and I said, oh my goodness, I'm going to respond to that. So um, after I finished my conversation, this young lady had no idea this was even happening. But uh, I remember going back after that retreat and and um, writing, sending an email to mother and saying, I, I will happily stay. And, um, and that particular grace, um, has sustained me through these, through these years of, um, of, I really believe the Lord, um, has called me here, not just because of my vow of obedience, but, but you have to say yes, even to that vow. So, um, so saying yes to that and yes to whatever he wants to do. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. And so at the moment you're doing your PhD and you're here, what are your hopes? What what does the future look like for you? Yeah. So I, um, I don't know uh, how long I'll be here. We receive our assignments each year. And, um, each time I talk with mother, it's usually future planning. (laughs) There's no, um, there's never been a, um, a conversation about when you come back to, um, the States. So, um, yeah. So, uh, part of my, uh, role here in in Sydney is also as a vocation director for our community. So that simply means accompanying young women who are discerning um, religious life. They'll write in this <laughs> very room. Uh, maybe I'll get an email from somebody who will say, "Can I just talk to you?" And so I'll say, "Yes." Yeah. So we'll set something up, and and she'll come, and she'll just talk. We'll just talk about what is God. What do you think God's doing in your life? And and um, and and. Usually, my role in that is simply um, is simply listening and trying to help them <laughs> hear what they're saying and uh, and what do they think God is calling them to. And then once in a while, given a bit of advice of um, sometimes they'll ask, "How do I pray? How do I try to hear God's voice? How do I um, work through something?" Um, so that's been a big. Uh, besides teaching, that's another um, big thing I'm involved in. So, where my hopes are for the future are for, uh, in terms of that, is um, just that young people would uh, would take seriously asking that: What is God? What is God's will for me? What is He calling me to? What greatness is He calling me to? Um, because the Lord has great hope for us, for each one of us, and and uh, that's my probably my greatest hope that the young people would ask that question, really dare to ask it, but I guess dare to be happy, really, because that's what um, the Lord wants for them. So that's um, one big aspect of my life, one thing that um, 
keeps me on my knees praying for these um, young people who entrust their questions to me and to the sisters. Um, but the other thing, as you mentioned, is my working on my PhD. So um, it is around the area of um, of pilgrimage, actually. It's um, the Catholic Education Office. So the Sydney Catholic Schools has a pilgrimage program for its teachers. And, um, and what I'm doing is I'm just looking at... Um, the impact of pilgrimage on the faith of the Catholic educator. So it's been pretty exciting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess just a couple of questions I'd like to close on. Yes. Is there a particular Bible verse or scripture that has really sort of been special or significant yeah. for you? Yes, actually, um, I. Um, it's funny because Romans 8, probably any aspect of it, but for me in particular, um, it's that phrase, nothing, well, really it's a question, what can separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul asked trial or persecution or nakedness or the sword. And then he concludes, in all these we are more than conquerors because of God's great love for us. And I think that um, that's only become, in the in this time that I've been at Sydney, my favorite. I'm not quite sure why. Um, but it's, um, I think it's probably because it puts the emphasis on God's love for us. The emphasis is not on us. It's no matter what I do or what I don't do, God will continue to love. And there's nothing I can do to stop him. I can pretend a whole lot. I can put up every obstacle. There's nothing I can do to stop him from loving me. And I think that whenever we encounter difficulties in our lives or something that looks like an obstacle or even our own sinfulness or failings, just to remind ourselves, okay, that has no power to separate me from his great love for me. And I, I take um, a lot of comfort in that scripture passage. Great. Yeah. And then lastly, how would you... It's sort of a big ask, but yeah. summarize what you believe in your worldview and your faith and philosophy. How would you sort of put that for people? Yeah, good. That is a big, that is a big one. <laughs> um, so what I believe is um, I believe in a loving God, right, who is a trinity of persons, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A communion of love. So that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has always existed. One pours itself out to the other in what we call an eternal exchange of love. And love of itself gives. So at a moment in time, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, out of a sheer gratuitous gift, created the world and created it to be good. Um, and in the, the pinnacle of that creation was the creation of, of man and woman. But love is only possible where there's freedom. So God gave to the, our first parents, who we know by the names of Adam and Eve in Genesis, um, gave them the great gift of freedom um, so that they might love. But they messed up, right? And the, and created within us and within all creation a massive rupture. And that rupture is between um, was between God and, and all of creation 
a rupture that, that could only be rectified by God. So that same loving God saw the state of our world in, in chaos um, and prepared a way and, and prepared a way through many prophets um, for the coming of his son, Jesus, the only one, the son of God, the savior of the world who could bridge that gap literally and reconcile the world to the father. Um, and when Jesus did that, he did it by taking upon himself on the cross, that chaos, that sin, that guilt, the reality that we experience, not, ra- not random experiences, but the reality of our sickness, the reality of our fear, the reality of our guilt, the reality of that feeling of hopelessness, not randomly, but ours, yours and mine, whatever it is right now, And for every person that ever was, for every person that ever will be, Jesus Christ took that on the cross, took it to himself, took it to the grave, died really, really, and three days later conquered it all, rose from the dead, Jesus Christ as Savior of the world, Son of God. So that when we experience that yuck, We don't have to sit in it. We don't have to stay in it. It has been buried. And we can call upon Jesus and say, Jesus, please help me. Jesus, be with me. Be with my family. Be with this crazy world. Be for us peace in this crazy world. And he's doing it. But we really, we need to be the ones. Peace is only possible in the hearts of people. It's not a vague sense of peace. Um, That's just occurred to me only recently. It's funny how we hopefully we continue to grow, but it's only possible in people's hearts. So what we need to do is really, how do we spread peace and share peace and share his healing power? Um, because he really wants us to be instruments but of his peace, of his love. Um, but he entrusts it to us who are earthen vessels, right? We're frail. But, um, but as I said earlier, he places incredible hope in us. And a, and a great hope of, um, really a great hope of eternal life. So that's it in a nutshell. At the end of our conversation, Sister Mary Rachel and the other sisters offered to sing a song. It's a song written by Sister Rose Miriam about St. Cecilia, who is the patroness of the Dominican sisters. It was a really beautiful moment, so here it is. While the music played, Cecilia sang in her heart. To her God, while the darkness raged, Cecilia prayed, make my heart
they confound the Lord, that I not fear, that I may not fear even the sword, with conscience pure, with conscience pure, and faith sincere. Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.